You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, it certainly has been a week, hasn't it? A friend of mine shared something online that said, what a year this week has been. I think that we can all relate to that one. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You will notice in your bulletin, my plans for this morning included Philippians 3.9. And Lord willing, we will look at that fantastic passage next time. But as I have spoken with many of you this week, I felt burdened at the last minute to switch lanes and do something that I've never done here at this church before. Revisit an old text. So let's go back to the Old Testament, this time to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, and for many of you, this will be the first time hearing me preach this particular passage because the last time we looked at this psalm together was four summers ago when I first arrived at First Baptist Church. And I believe it's worth revisiting today because we need the message of this psalm now more than ever. Every election cycle, it seems that the stakes get higher. Our country becomes more divided, ideologically, politically, morally. We become more divided. Honestly, we don't know what the future holds, but we do know that our country is headed somewhere. And we have a pretty good idea of where it's going because one thing leads to another, leads to another, and things are not slowing down. They just keep ramping up. As of right now, over 60 million legal abortions have occurred in the United States since 1973. And yet, thanks to Referendum 90, Washington school districts will soon be required to teach sexual education classes to our kindergartners. At one time, marijuana was illegal in every state. Last week, Oregon passed a measure to decriminalize the possession of heroin, meth, LSD, and other hard drugs. I remember when I was a child in school, we would watch black and white VHS tapes of the Holocaust. We saw families murdered and bodies discarded like piles of trash in concentration camps and next to train tracks outside of the city. No acting, real people, real deaths, real evil, in stark black and white. We left our classrooms under that heavy weight, that feeling of despair in the pit of our stomachs after witnessing the horrors and the cruelties of fascism. We read books like Animal Farm, where George Orwell takes a group of hopeful animals and creates a heartbreaking allegory for the events leading up to the Russian Revolution of 1917. As the book progresses, the intoxicating allure of socialism creates a power vacuum for what would eventually become Stalin's reign of terror in the Soviet Union. I don't know what they're reading now, but a lot has changed in the last 30 years. Somehow, an entire generation has been re-educated into believing that socialism is somehow cool or that mankind is inherently good. That is, unless you 
haven't paid for the sins of your ancestors, or you happen to believe in biblical Christianity, or you refuse to redefine words such as marriage and love. There is no room in this world for people who hold those views. Our heroes have been rebranded as villains, and yet it has become racist to protect the innocent and defend the defenseless. Those who would stand in the way of an eight-year-old receiving a sex change, those are the real monsters. And the mother who murders her child out of convenience, she is the one who deserves our praise. Friends like you, I am tired. I am tired, I'm sick of it. Quite frankly, I'm angry and I'm frustrated. So I believe we can all use a healthy reminder this morning of the truth that we know and the truth that we need if we are to face what lies ahead. I've titled this message, When the Lights Go Out. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus told his disciples, he said this, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Church, this world is coming for us. If the Lord waits long enough, things are bound to get a lot worse. Honestly, the American church remains far from persecuted. We have it pretty good. We've had it pretty good, and honestly, we still do. But we are hated, and we do know that persecution is coming. So today is a good day for us to come together as the body of Christ and come back to the only source of comfort, encouragement, and hope that we have. So please follow along as I read from Psalm 34, starting at the very top. He says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days? that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace 
and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What an incredible psalm. Psalm 34 is a beautifully crafted acrostic poem. In one one sense, it's too bad that we can only look at it in English this morning because in Hebrew, it's, it's beautifully crafted and put together, meaning that each line begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are only eight acrostic psalms throughout the entire Psalter. Four appear at the beginning of book one and four appear at the end of book five. So they bookend this magnificent portion of God's word. Perhaps the most famous of these acrostics is Psalm 119 because it is the longest chapter in the Bible and each letter has its own stanza instead of its own verse. James Montgomery Boyce suggests that acrostic poems were written for a number of reasons. He gives us three. First of all, for the Jews, it might just simply be an artistic device, something that is beautiful and pretty, something that adds a certain level of beauty to the psalm, much like rhyming does for our poetry. Additionally, it might indicate that the subject is being covered completely, like we would say in our vernacular, it's covered from A to Z. There, it's, it's covered from the beginning to the end of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's comprehensive. And then thirdly, the acrostic may have been a mnemonic device to help others absorb the material, much like how it is so much easier for us today to memorize poetry than prose. All that to say that Psalm 34 is a beautifully written, comprehensive, teaching psalm. And it comes to us from a dark period in David's life. And that much is clear from the transcription. He says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I like how the Holman translates it, because it just gets right to the point. That version says, concerning David when he pretended to be insane. When he pretended to be insane. Of all the Psalms, only 14 of them have a transcription that ties the material right back to the historical events of David's life. But why is David pretending to be insane? Why would the future king of Israel change his behavior? Why would he be on the run in the first place? Well, the setting for our text comes from 1 Samuel 21. So let's go ahead and turn there. 1 Samuel 21. I think it's important for us to put ourselves in David's shoes just for a moment. 1 Samuel 21. This is well after he has been anointed king, but well before he has been crowned king. And just a few chapters before this, he killed Goliath. And now King Saul is threatening his life. So he had to get out of town in a hurry. Look at verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. Now, I'm going to pause just for a moment and say that Ahimelech is not Abimelech. 
He's not the same person that we read about here in Psalm 34 or in that transcription. I realize that there's just one letter that separates the two men, but they are very, very different individuals. The, uh, the Abimelech that we see in Psalm 34, that's just an ancient title, like a royal title that they would give their leaders in Philistine. Much like how the Egyptians would call their king Pharaoh, the Philistines would call their king Abimelech. So in this case, the title refers to King Achish of Gath, but that's not who we have here in this first verse. Instead, we have Ahimelech, who is really just a a good guy. He's a good guy with a really terrible-sounding name, Ahimelech. What does he say here in verse 1? And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter, and said to me, let no one know anything of this matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread for whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. Well, David is, of course, hungry at this point. He's already deceived this sweet man and saying, well, I'm actually on a secret mission from Saul. And so he's ready to say just about anything to soothe the priest's conscience. So he does that there in verse 5. Now look at verse 6. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So in other words, David is alone. He's starving. And he doesn't know where to go or what to do. So he finds himself in Nob, basically asking this godly man for the ancient equivalent of Jimmy John's day-old bread. And look at what he says here in verse 8. Then David said to Abimelech, or Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that? Give it to me. He says, Okay, if that's the best you've got, give me the giant sword. Now we're ready for the setting of Psalm 34. David is tired, he's hungry, he's running away from Saul, he's lying to people about it, he is right in the heart of Philistine territory, and he has Goliath's sword. What could possibly go wrong? Verse 10, and David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another? Of him in dances and songs, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. See, these Philistines, they weren't fooled at all. They knew exactly who David was. They knew that, that David was a giant killer, and he had come to their town. They were terrified of him. And by the way, Gath, the town that he happened to go to with Goliath's sword, was, was also Goliath's hometown. It's also the town that Goliath grew up in. Back home in in Indiana where I grew up, we grew up in a a town smaller than Arlington. 
And so there were about five or six names that you would find either before or after all of the local businesses. You would have Pell's Hardware, you would have Lynn's Pharmacy, you would have Butts whatever. We had these certain names within the town. That, it would have been a similar situation for him. People would know Goliath. They would know his family. They'd know his upbringing and where he came from. They would have watched him grow up into the mountain of a man that he was. And here comes David, the man who killed him with his sword. Israel's champion strolling into town. Talk about awkward and dangerous. Look at verse 12. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior. This is where we have Psalm 34. He changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Gentlemen, if you try this trick at home with your wife, it won't work. <laughs> Trust me. Not that I've tried it, but the madman spittle in the beard trick, it only works on Philistine kings. It does not work at home. Unless you enjoy extra dish duty, I wouldn't even think about it. Look at the beginning of chapter 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. It is likely that David wrote Psalm 34 during his time in the cave of Adullam. Adullam, by the way, means refuge, which we're going to see over and over again in Psalm 34. Now, let me ask you this. Knowing the backstory, do you think that David was having a good day? Do you think he was having a good week? When he sat down to write this poem, on the run from Saul, exiled, starving, defenseless, he finds himself scribbling nonsense on the gates of his enemies while drooling into his beard, pretending to be crazy, only to hide out in a cave for who knows how long, surrounded by the 400 of the most depressing people imaginable. The text says everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul. I mean, this is David's army. These are his men. You've heard of Robin Hood and his merry men? What about poor David and his miserable men? That's what we have here in this text. It is not a good time for David. And yet, what does he write during these dark days in the cave, surrounded by so much death and depression? Let's turn back to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. He doesn't say, woe is me. I can't go on, God. I can't do this. This isn't fair. Why would you put me here? Why would you allow these things to come into my life? I've been anointed to be the future king of Israel. This isn't good. Why have you put me here, O oh God? How could you do this to me? That is not what he says. Instead, he shouts, I will bless the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
He says, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of my shame, pain, and despair, at all times, continually, no matter what, I will bless the Lord. Verse 2, my soul makes us boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Notice that his boast is in the Lord, not in his cleverness or ability to escape or lie well or to find himself out of harm's way temporarily. No, he is boasting in the Lord's deliverance. This is the one thing that we can properly boast about. Because the object of our boasting, it's not in us. It's not in you. But it's in the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God of the universe. It's okay to brag about him. It's okay to brag about his goodness. In fact, we should. Those who are humble enough to admit that they are weak and give praise where praise is due, those people are glad to boast in God. Such an attitude will naturally lead the heart to a place of worship. Look at verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Notice David begins by choosing to praise God no matter what. He refuses to adopt the same depressing attitude that everyone else has. Instead, he rises above it all in worship, and then he invites us to join in with him in worship of our own. You see, things are bad right now. And we have a feeling that things are going to get worse. But if this man can write this poem while being hunted, persecuted, reviled, and ridiculed, then the least that we can do is stoop down to his level and join him in praising our God. David knew the secret to having a good life, even when life is bad. Psalm 34 is a powerful poem about serving God when the lights go out. And it doesn't just call us to worship when things fall apart. It tells us why we should. For the rest of the psalm, David encourages us to redirect our attention from the filth of our circumstances to the Lord's goodness. And in doing so, he provides five reasons to worship God while the chips are down. Five reasons to worship God while the chips are down. Why is a thankful heart full of praise and gratitude to the Lord so important when the world crumbles before your eyes? Why give God the biggest boast when everything in your flesh wants to give Him the biggest blame? Because when we do, when we look to Him in the dark, we see these five truths that will strengthen us and encourage us when we need that the most. So let's get started. What are these five encouraging truths that we see here in this text. When we look to the Lord, the first thing that we see is His protection. His protection. Look at the next stanza, verses 4 through 7. He says, I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. As we just saw in 1 Samuel 21, this is the lowest point of David's life so far. It's going to get worse. He doesn't know that. He can't look ahead. He can't see the future. 
but it's already bad. It's not good. In the chapter before that, in 1 Samuel 20, he had to part ways with his best friend Jonathan after confirming that Jonathan's dad, Saul, was definitely out to kill him. So David was alone. He was without friends, without any real weapons. He was without food. By the time he gets to the cave, all he has is Goliath's sword and a few hundred moaners to keep him company. It's no wonder that he refers to himself in verse 6 as the poor man. This poor man, he, he has nothing. And there are times in our lives when we feel like we have nothing. And when we fall into that, that mindset, the best thing that we can do is turn back to the Psalms. Psalms like Psalm 34, because David is right there with us. And he says, follow my example. Do, do what I'm doing. Do what I did. I, I sought the Lord. I looked after the Lord. I, I went searching for him. And guess what? I found him. And when I did, my, my fears melted away. I looked to him, and he made my face shine. I cried out, and he heard me. He saved me from all of my troubles. He protected me. I know that I'm still in danger, but I also know that he will keep protecting me now. Look at what he says there in verse 7. He says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Who is this angel of the Lord? Well, we don't have time to get into it too deep today, but there is strong evidence that the angel of the Lord is, in fact, the pre-incarnate Christ. Him being the second member of the Trinity prior to becoming a man himself. This incredible figure shows up a lot throughout the Old Testament. He is the one who comforts Hagar in the desert. In Exodus 3, he is the one speaking to Moses in the burning bush. I, I know it's a small pet peeve and it shouldn't bother me so much, but I felt like I'd been lied to my entire childhood when, when I actually read the text for myself and I discovered that there was a man in the bush. I, every coloring book I ever colored as a child, it was just a burning bush. But that voice wasn't coming out of nothing or nowhere. The angel of the Lord is actually in the bush speaking to him. And that angel says, you tell them my name is Yahweh. You tell them Yahweh sent you. He is the one who stopped Abraham from sacrificing Isaac in Genesis 22. It is a voice from heaven, yes, but that voice comes from the angel of the Lord. And that doesn't even scratch the surface. You see this angel of the Lord all throughout the Old Testament. He's diving into the stream of human history, altering the course of human events, and then popping back out again. And in every case, he speaks as God, for God, and receives worship that is reserved for God alone. The angel of the Lord is the second member of the Godhead. He is the pre-incarnate Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. If anyone has seen God, they have seen the Son. They have seen that second member of the Trinity. For no man has seen God the Father. Please don't let that word angel fool you. It simply means messenger. Messenger in the Hebrew. So the name could just as accurately be translated the messenger of Yahweh. Or the one sent by Yahweh. I encourage you, if you haven't already, keep your eyes open for the angel of the Lord, especially as you read through the Old Testament. It's an exciting thing to see our Savior at work, even before he came to save. He is, after all, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And here we see that he protects. 
He protects and he delivers those who are his. He doesn't just deliver us from our fears like we see in verse 4. He doesn't just deliver us from our troubles like we see in verse 6. He also delivers us from those who would like to see us dead. Listen, when it comes to God, this is an important lesson for all of us to hold on to tightly with both hands. When it comes to God, no one dies prematurely. No one dies prematurely. He won't allow anyone to die before it's time. You can be confident that he will preserve your life until the time is right for him to take you home. Job cried out to the Lord in Job 14.5 saying, man's days are determined. They're determined. In other words, they're chosen for us ahead of time. They are determined and the number of his months is with you, speaking to the Lord. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. You will not live a day longer than God has already determined for you to live. In Psalm 139, David declares that God is keeping a record of our days, even before they happen. So just think about it. Do you really think that the one who knows the number of of hairs that you have left on your head, you don't even know that. But the one who does, do you really believe or, or think, even for a moment, that he doesn't know the time and the place of your death? Of course he does. That's why David can say in Psalm 31, 15, my times are in your hand. Friend, who better for us to turn to for protection, for confidence, for safety than the sovereign ruler of everything, the one who shaped the mountains that are outside of these windows, the one who put all those brilliant colors on the trees that Ian talked about a few minutes ago, the one who plays with the hearts of men like putty, the one who creates with words and controls time itself. Compared to him, all other shelters become graves. Historical legend has it that in 1799, Napoleon's armies appeared on the heights above Feldkirk, which is located just off of the Austrian border. It was Easter, and the attackers' weapons could be seen at a distance, glittering in the morning sun on the hills to the west. So the town council quickly gathered at the local church to discuss their next move. It appeared as though they had two options, mount a defense or wave a white flag and hope for the best. After much discussion, the pastor rose, and this is what he said. He said, my brothers, we have been counting on our own strength, and apparently that has failed. Therefore, let us turn to God. As this is the day of our Lord's resurrection, let us just ring the bells hold our services as usual, and leave the matter in his hands. We know only our weakness and not the power of God to defend us. Well, this resonated with those present, so they agreed to ring the bells. Soon the streets were crowded with the bustle of worshipers on their way to church. The French army heard the bells as well, and they concluded that the Austrian army had finally arrived to defend the town. So that morning, before the service had ended, the enemy had broken camp and left. Friends, too often, like the pastor said, we know only our weakness and not the power of God to defend us. When we look to God in the dark, we see his sustaining power and infinite love. We see his protection. 
But that's not all that we see. We also see his provision. His provision. That's number two. Look at verse 8 through verse 10. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is by far the most popular portion of our text, found in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is a beautiful verse. Perhaps you've heard it quoted at communion services in the past, and, and that's fine. I mean, there certainly isn't anything wrong with that. After all, this verse appeals to the senses, and it's a very descriptive command. We are told to do this, to taste and to see. In fact, it's so descriptive that sometimes it makes people feel uncomfortable, and that's unfortunate. Some have suggested that it is wrong or irreverent to compare such a good and great and glorious God to anything else that's good or beneath him, like food. But that is exactly what David does here. In the very word of God itself, he says, come, come and give God a try, as you would some delicacy or fine treat. I mentioned James Montgomery Boyce earlier, and I really like what he had to say about this verse. He said, although God is more than his image, suggests he is certainly not less. He is, he is certainly more than this image suggests, but he is not less. And let's keep that in perspective. He says, our problem is not that we think of him too literally, but that we do not think of him literally enough. That's good. I mean, of course God is greater than the metaphor. But in our attempts to not tie him down, let's not forget that it's okay to associate our good God with things that are good whether that's fine food, an afternoon on the water, or a day without rain in November, it's okay. He's saying if you come to the Lord, you will see that he is altogether good, and you will experience that goodness for yourself. And when that happens, you won't be satisfied with just a taste. And God is so good, you're going to keep coming back. And you're going to want more and more and more until eventually you are all in. He says, blessed or happy is the man who takes refuge in him. In other words, the guy with the good life takes refuge in him. Not the man who signs a temporary lease or buys a timeshare or takes a vacation in him. But the one who takes refuge in him, moves in, hides himself, runs to the Lord for safety. God offers so much blessing, so much comfort, joy, and peace for those who run into his open arms. David is saying, check it out. See what it's like for yourself. Blessed is the man who does. He goes on to tell the saints to fear the Lord. Why? Because those who fear him have no lack. Followed by verse 10 with another comparative metaphor to emphasize the point along with another declaration that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. In other words, God provides for those who fear him and seek him. You see, those who belong to God, they are not lacking. They are taken care of. Now, don't misunderstand what the Spirit is saying here. This isn't a promise to get rich. Many of us have heard prosperity preachers use verses just like this one to get money out of folks. And that is not going to happen this morning. But David never says, he never says here in the text, 
You've got to give more to get more. Instead, he simply says that those who taste and see the goodness of God for themselves, who run to him for safekeeping and entrust themselves to his care, that's just an Old Testament way of saying those who live by faith, those who fear God, who respect him with an astonished sense of wonder and awe and reverence, those who are rightly afraid of his power and his righteousness, so they seek him wholeheartedly and strive to obey him in all that he has commanded. That person, that person will discover that God is strong, sheltering, sovereign, and sympathetic to their needs. That is what he's saying. David did. And don't forget that David did not write this in the comfort of his palace study. He wasn't king yet. No, he's still in a cave surrounded by society's losers. He's still poor, and he's still being hunted by his best friend's dad, the king. And yet he sees God's providence, even when he's lacking the most. He can say with confidence that he lacks nothing. Nothing, because God is the one who has given him everything. You see, God is so good, so good. Every provision in life demonstrates his goodness. All that he creates and all that he gives is good. So when the lights go out, David testifies to this goodness, this protection and provision that comes from the Lord. In the next stanza, we have number three, his proposal. His proposal. Look at verses 11 through 14. He says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. What we have here basically is a Holy Spirit-inspired Sunday school lesson. He says, Come, come and listen to what I have to say, little children. Listen to me, and I will explain to you exactly what a right fear of the Lord looks like. Most theologians will often make a distinction between our definition of fear and an Old Testament definition of reverence. We'll look at those two things and make a distinction between them, and that's a good thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, one of the definitions for fear found in the Merriam-Webster says to have a reverential awe of, particularly relating to God. But notice that that is not how David defines fear, at least not here in our divinely inspired Sunday school lesson. He doesn't define it as a reverential awe of God or a separation of, of thought and mind, not in the same sense that we normally do. Instead, he defines the fear of the Lord, not by an emotion or attitude, but by an action. The fear of the Lord is not a feeling to David, but an active lifestyle. Peter would pick up on this later on, and he would use Psalm 34 to describe the essentials of living a moral life. So let's go ahead and head over there real quick to the New Testament and look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. right after Hebrews. And James, and 1 Peter 3. 
First Peter is full of comfort theology. It was written to suffering Christians who needed a healthy dose of comfort and encouragement. Depending on how things go in the days ahead, I may be preaching through First Peter sooner than I thought. First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. When it comes to David's Sunday school lesson, Peter got it. At this point in his letter, he is about to begin a lengthy section on how to suffer well for your faith. And what better Old Testament instruction for him to call upon than this divinely inspired Sunday school lesson of Psalm 34, where the faithful are encouraged to seek God in the dark, worship him, and be blessed. So Peter takes us straight to this lesson, to this part of the poem. So let me ask you this. Show of hands for those brave enough. Does anyone here want to live a good life? Anyone? I would think we all do. Everyone wants to live a good life. Even when your life has fallen apart. Unless you have cotton between your ears, of course you do. We all do. Everyone wants to have a happy life. I don't know anyone who doesn't. Well, friend, here's how you do it. Here it is. The Spirit gives us three verbs. Here are your action items for the day. Keep, turn, and seek. Keep, turn, and seek. Keep your tongue from evil. Turn away from evil. And seek peace. According to David, Peter, and the Holy Spirit, who inspired both passages... This is what the fear of the Lord looks like. This is the beginning of wisdom. This is the proposal that God has placed on the table. If you want to navigate this world wisely, if you want to avoid suffering and the painful consequences of your own mistakes, if you want to enjoy the time that you have here regardless of how dark things get, then fear the Lord. Fear the Lord by actively obeying Him. Or as Peter put it, you will obtain a blessing. Obtain the blessing by putting these three verbs into action. When we worship God in the dark, we see his protection, his provision, and his proposal. Number four, we see his posture. His posture. Look at verses 15 through 18. He says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Here we have two groups, the righteous and the wicked. And the important thing to notice is God's posture towards each. In verse 15, he is toward the righteous. In verse 16, he is against the wicked. In verses 17 and 18, he hears and delivers and is near and he saves the righteous. 
It is as if the righteous are so dear to the Lord, he can't stop caring about them. He can't stop devoting his time and attention to them because he loves them. And he is entirely turned around and he is concerned with the righteous. Listen, friend, when you pray, you want the eyes and the ears of God. You want him to see your pain and hear your prayers. You want him to do something about your suffering. You want him to come close to you and comfort you when your heart is broken. You want him to save you when your spirit is crushed. Church, this is what God does. This isn't some, this isn't some far off idea. This is what God does. This is what he wants to do for each and every one of his children. This is his loving response to his loving children. This is his posture towards those who take refuge in him, who entrust themselves to his care. If you accept this proposal, the the proposal that we just looked at, to fear and obey him, you will be blessed. Or as Peter summarizes it, you will enjoy all of the benefits and all of the the kind and, and loving attentiveness that could possibly be yours from this loving God, this Father who cares for you. For those who, for those who, uh, those of you here who know that you have this sweet communion, this communal relationship with the Lord, I have to ask, I mean, aren't, aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful to have it? I mean, there are so many people in this world, they will never know what that relationship is like. They will never have it. And yet God has been so kind and so gracious to us. They will never know the Lord in this way, and yet we have that privilege. I hope it is your delight to sacrificially serve your king, to hold back and to keep your tongue from evil, to discipline your lips from shooting deceitful arrows, to turn away from evil and to do good. As Peter would say later in 1 Peter 2.11, I beg you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. I pray that you will run the race and fight the good fight. I pray that your inner man will be renewed day by day. I pray that you would do as the apostle commands in 2 Peter 1.10, that you would be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. And in doing so, I hope that you are more like Christ today than ever before. And that the word of God has found good soil in your heart today. And that his roots would run deep into the very core of who you are and it would bear much fruit. Because friend, it is worth it. It is worth it. And all you have to do is cry out for help. That's all you have to do. God's posture towards you is worth it. His care, his concern, his presence, his love, his protection, his provision, his deliverance, his healing. These are all here for the blessing. All you need to do is cry out to him. James tells us that we don't have because we don't ask. And when we do ask, we ask with the wrong motives. Sadly, for many of us, our first response is not to seek God in the dark. Instead, when things don't go our way, we try to cry out to each other or anyone else who will listen. We quietly mutter profanities under our breath or blame others for not caring enough. We implode within ourselves rather than explode in praise to God. For most of us, these are normal responses, and they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. Not for God's people. 
Can you imagine what it would be like, though, if we all followed David's example? If we all lived our lives like this? What if on our worst days we resolved ourselves to say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Christian, you have the greatest privilege in the universe. You have the ears and eyes of God. Use that privilege. Cry out to him. Find peace and take heart. Because verse 18, he is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. This is our God. This is who he is. This is what he wants to do. But let's not ignore the second group listed here in our section. Those who do evil. Look at the Lord's posture towards them in verse 16. He says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. You know, often it appears as though the wicked have the upper hand. Some weeks it feels like that more than others. Asaph wrote a brutally honest psalm about it. So let's just take a moment and look at Psalm 73. We've looked at it before. Let's look at it again. Psalm 73. Just a few pages to the right. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He says, I almost messed up big time, and here's how. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, this people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. In other words, they get away with it. The people love it. The people lap it up. There's no consequence for their sin. The people gladly approve of it. Look at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So he's looking at the wicked and he's wondering, what's the deal, Lord? What's the deal? Uh, my pursuit of righteousness, it just keeps bringing me pain. It keeps bringing me heartache. But these God-haters, they are the ones living the good life. Here we have a godly man who is honestly frustrated, and he's tired of seeing evil win. But look at how things turn, turn around here in verse 16. He says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So he goes to the Lord. And he considers it. And this is the conclusion he comes to. This is the truth that he finds for the rest of the passage. He says, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. 
when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The legacy of the wicked is destruction. As the text says, the face of the Lord is against those who who do evil. He cuts off their memory from the earth. He goes out of his way to end them, to wipe them out, even their legacy. So hopefully you have arrived at Asaph's conclusion in Psalm 73. I would much rather have the eyes and ears of the Lord toward me than the face of his wrath against me. When we praise him in the pain, we see his posture both towards us and towards others. That's number four. So David has called us to worship God with him. And when we direct our attention towards God in the middle of life's sorrows, we see his protection, his provision, his proposal, and his posture. Finally, David leaves us with God's promise, his promise. Look at the final stanza, verses 19 through 22. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. As I mentioned earlier, portions of this psalm could easily become fertile ground for the health and wealth charlatans who would twist scripture for their purposes. But they would have to skip verse 19, wouldn't they? One of the many things I love about the Holy Spirit and the scriptures is that they're honest. They don't deceive us. They don't gloss over the truth. They don't sell us a bill of goods or get us to sign on the dotted line only to trick us. No, they're, they're honest. They're honest. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. I love how Charles Spurgeon puts it. You knew I was going to quote him at some point this morning. He says, Scripture does not flatter us with the idea that goodness will secure us from trouble. On the contrary, we are again and again warned to expect tribulation while we are in this body, end quote. You see, the righteous are not promised a comfortable life now, but we are promised many afflictions, as in more than one, more than two, more than three. Thankfully, we have this little word, but, but, to help take the sting out of this verse. He adds, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Praise God for that. There is a happy ending to the believer's affliction. And that's not all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. 
Now remember, this is a poem. This is a poem. What we have here is symbolic and expressive language that emphasizes the completeness of God's protection over the afflicted righteous. But this was also a literal and miraculous truth concerning Jesus at the time of his crucifixion. And John makes a reference to it in John 19.36 because it is an incredible supernatural truth. Isaiah 52.14 tells us that his appearance was so marred there on the cross beyond any human semblance and that his form was beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, if after the crucifixion, if you found Jesus' body in a field somewhere, you would have no idea what you were looking at. You wouldn't know. It wouldn't look like a man. That's how badly Jesus was beaten and broken for our redemption. That's how bad it was. He didn't even look human. And yet, in spite of that, not one bone was broken. Not one bone. So when they beat him and they kicked him and they whipped him, he didn't have one hairline fracture on his cheekbone. Think about that. Not one rib was broken. Not one. What happened that day was supernatural. But you see, that's how true to God's word God really is. Jesus is the only truly righteous man to ever live completely, totally, without sin. He lived a perfectly sinless life, and it had to be that way in order for us to become truly righteous men and women destined to rule and reign with him as adopted sons and daughters into his divine family. You see, if, if Psalm 3420 is symbolic language for the level of care that God has for the righteous sinner, then how much more so would it need to be taken literally for the one who is truly righteous, the truly righteous man who has never sinned? And I say all of that for two reasons. One, we need to marvel at the total faithfulness of God to his word. Concerning the ultimate sacrifice of our magnificent Savior, that should take our breath away. We need to marvel at that. And number two, we need to recognize that the specific application of this verse to Jesus' life in no way nullifies the general application as it still applies to us. One of the great axioms of Bible interpretation is the text can never mean what it never meant. And verse 20 still emphasizes the completeness of God's protection over the afflicted righteous. And David was beaten up pretty badly. But he wasn't broken to the point that his spirit was so crushed beyond repair. And the same can be said for us. To quote Charles Spurgeon a second time, he said, No substantial injury occurs to the saints. Eternity will heal all their wounds. Their real self is safe. They may have flesh wounds, but no part of the essential fabric of their being will be broken. Amen. Amen. Ah, it's so good. Eternity will heal every single one of our temporary wounds. No part of us, the real us, will ever truly be broken. Unlike the wicked. Look at verse 21. Affliction will slay the wicked. It will slay them. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Verse 19 tells us that the righteous have many afflictions, 
but those afflictions will not destroy us. We get beat up, and the Lord saves us. For the wicked, not so much. Their affliction will ultimately consume them until there is nothing left but agony and hatred. This is the destiny of those who hate the righteous, those who choose to do evil, who reject God's proposal, and ultimately reject his son's sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of new life in him. I hope that doesn't describe you this morning. Well, this poor man ends his poem with a final encouraging reminder. He says, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. No matter how dark things get, friend, remember your Redeemer. Run to your refuge. Above all, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember that. This is the promise that we have in Him. Church, when we look around, we have much to be discouraged about. This world is dark, and it feels like it's getting darker. But regardless of how many afflictions come our way, we have a good God who gives us good things. We have his undivided attention and we have his word that he will ultimately deliver us. So when persecution does come, will you be able to say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. When persecution does come, will you do that? Let me ask you an even harder question. Did you do that this last week? Did you do that? Did your social media feed drive you closer to the Lord or deeper into despair? What about the proposal? Did you keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit? Did you turn away from evil and do good? Did you seek peace and pursue it? Or did you happen to forget that you were called to shine like a star in the middle of a crooked and depraved generation? Friend, let's not live like those who are perishing. Let's not do it. Let's not live like those who wander around in the dark with no hope, without any understanding. Because unlike them, we have a deliverer. We have a comforter, a redeemer. When we praise God in the dark, we see his protection, his provision, his proposal, his posture, and his promise. And as we focus on him instead of the darkness, we discover that we are truly blessed. Let's turn to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, God of heaven, Lord, we love you. We come before you this morning as your humble people, made righteous by your Son. Lord, not by anything that we could ever bring to the table, but Lord, I pray that you would encourage us with these truths this morning. That as the darkness grows around us, that we would not be consumed by it, that we would not be pulled into one direction or the other, but that we would keep our eyes fixed firmly on you. Lord, that we would see these truths, that we would see these benefits, these reasons why 
It is so important, so important for us to turn to you, to trust in you, to rely on you in absolutely everything. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray that these truths would never be far from our lips, that we would honor you, that we would serve you, and that we would do so faithfully for the rest of our days. In your precious and holy name, amen.